The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation 1, 4-20. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. All right, well, if you are visiting us this morning, we just started preaching through the book of Revelation. Last week, Pastor Sam preached an introduction to this book and set us up with preaching through the first three verses, and today we'll just be continuing through chapter one and finish it out. Now I have to admit, when I heard earlier in the summer from Pastor Justin that we were going to be preaching through the book of Revelation, I immediately thought, "Uh uh-oh, I hope they don't ask me to preach any of those sermons. That didn't pan out too well for me, did it? Here we are week two in a five-month series, and I'm already filling the pulpit, and Sam did me kind of dirty too. He texts me and says, hey, will you preach for me? On November 11th, and I said, absolutely, man. He said, I think we'll just go ahead and split chapter one. I said, hey, that's cool. That sounds great. He said, I'm going to take the first three verses. You go ahead and preach the rest of the chapter. (laughs) So yeah, I had and still have some anxieties about preaching through this book, but those anxieties were calmed a little bit as Sam sent me an email with some thoughts in this passage and said this, 
Many people get intimidated by revelation, but that doesn't have to be the case. It's a story about how Jesus wins and how that should compel us to worship and endurance. That's it. What a simple summary of revelation. Simple but powerful. Now, while our passage this morning doesn't necessarily fully disclose the details of Jesus winning, it does introduce us to who Jesus really is, which gives us a picture of why him winning is the likely result. The real identity of Jesus has to be brought out into the light to unchurched folk, of course, but even those inside the church need to see it. We may think we know Jesus, But in the words of Pastor Bob Thune, in our culture, Jesus has been domesticated. He's been watered down. He's been robbed of any fierceness or power or awesomeness. And this has led many to leave the faith because they see no need for Jesus. And it has led others to be lukewarm in their faith. Their church going may be for a social benefit, for a desire to keep the tradition of their family, or at best, a get-out-of-hell-free card but it's not because they have a deep desire to live for Jesus. He isn't compelling to them. They have other things that they feel are more valuable, more interesting, more worthy of their worship. Well, if you have been a Christian for any amount of time, you probably know that we all can struggle with this sort of thing, which means we all lose sight of who Jesus really is. That leads us to living a life that looks much different from the life that our king has called us to. So I believe that seeing the real Jesus is our greatest need in life. So my hope for today is to walk you through the rest of chapter one, and we're going to be heavy in the text and introduce you to the real Jesus. And as Pastor Sam said, do it in a way that would compel us to worship and endurance. My hope is for all of us to be red hot leaving here today because we've been set aflame by who we meet today, the real Jesus. So if you want to open up your Bibles and go to Revelation chapter 1, this is an easy book to find. You just go to the back of your Bible and look for the last book that's in your Bible. We're going to start in verse 4. It says, John, this is the Apostle John, one of the 12 disciples, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So in this letter, we see John writing to seven churches. Now these were actual churches in Asia. We even get their names, as you can see down in verse 11. But as Pastor Sam mentioned, and if you have seen the book that Pastor Justin wrote for us on Revelation, you've seen that this book has many different numbers that are used throughout, and these numbers have significance. Not significance as in they contain some type of, some type of secret code that many want to believe, but significance as in they represent something more than just stating a numerical value. The number seven symbolizes completeness and perfection. We will see it numerous times in this chapter, but here, when John says seven churches, it's not just these listed churches that he's speaking to, but also the universal church, meaning all believers throughout time and space. So when we read this, as we heard last week, this wasn't written to us, but it is for us. So as we continue to read, receive what John is saying. He says, grace to you and peace. Anyone here need any grace and peace? I'll take some. John knew these people needed grace and peace because living the Christian life can be hard. It's uncomfortable much of the time, and there's so many things that lead us away from doing it well. 
We need what John offers here, especially because who he says it's from. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now before we get to Jesus in the next verse, because here is our first encounter with who the real Jesus is, do you see the reference to who the real God is? God is one God in three persons. We call it the Trinity. Now many people say that the Trinity is not in the Bible. They're right, that word isn't in the Bible, but where it came from is definitely in the Bible. And here we get a great example of it. Who was, who is, and who is to come. That's a reference to Yahweh, the Hebrew God, the one who described himself to Moses as I am who I am, the one who always was and always will be, whom we call the Father now if we are in Christ. The seven spirits who are before his throne, a reference to the third member of the Trinity. This is another use of the number seven. The seven spirits is another way of saying the perfect spirit, or what the Bible calls the Holy Spirit. Within this greeting to these churches, John is reminding them of who the real God is and where true grace and peace come from. Let's continue in verse five. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Here's where our picture of the real Jesus starts. What John uses to describe Jesus here is more than enough to bring us to worship. But we should ask ourselves if we truly believe these things. Because I think some of us, maybe we're so familiar with these things that they can become almost stale. John starts by saying, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. This was much needed for the original audience. What were they called to as Christians? To be witnesses, missionary outposts. They were to shine light in a dark world just like Jesus did. And they were doing that. These people were set aflame and that was leading them into suffering. We will get into some of that suffering in a little bit, but even in that suffering, God didn't change what he commissioned them to do. He still called them to be faithful in their witness. Church, this call hasn't changed for us even though we're 2,000 years deeper into God's story. We now have been called to be faithful witnesses, even as being a Christian becomes more and more difficult in our postmodern and post-Christian society. So this is much needed for us as well. This is part of that endurance that this entire book is calling us to. Jesus showed us how it's done. He laid out the example of what it looks like to follow him, but what's amazing is seeing Jesus as example of that faithful witness, yes, could possibly be fuel for us to follow that example, but these people he's writing to and Christians now know that there's more to the real Jesus. Jesus is not only an example of a faithful witness for us to follow, but he's our substitute as that faithful witness that we can't be. We are called to step into the battle but thankfully, the battle is ultimately his and not ours. Verse 5 continues with the firstborn of the dead. This is familiar language for other places in the Old New Testament. It is speaking of the resurrection as well as Jesus as the heir to the throne. When we see firstborn here, we can think the first to be raised to new life after defeating death, but also as describing the one who will inherit the kingdom from the Father. 
just as a firstborn son would be next in line to the king's throne. Do we see what John is doing here? He's talking to people that stepped out into faith to follow a man that was hung on a cross, that died and was buried. So he's reminding his audience that Jesus is no longer dead, but he is risen. John knows this will encourage people, help them to see that they can rise up from whatever grave they may be in. He's also telling them that the kingdom that Jesus came to bring to earth is his, which flows right into the next description and the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus' kingdom is above all other kingdoms, greater than Rome who was persecuting them then, and even if there are more to come that are greater, more powerful than Rome, it doesn't matter. All of them are under Christ's rule. So I just want us to stop and think about all that John has shared so far and ask, do we believe this? And if so, what evidence is there in our lives like his original audience that has been set aflame and was bringing light to the darkness of the world. Has Jesus being your substitute and Savior and Lord caused you to be, caused you to love others more than you love yourself? Has it caused us to get uncomfortable and not hide your faith but share it openly with others in your life? Let this be your encouragement. Remember, John is writing as a pastor, right? One who cares about God's people, who knows what they are going through. We will see that more clearly later in the chapter. He wants to encourage them, and how he wants to encourage them is by reminding them of the truth about God. Seeing who God is, seeing the real Jesus changes people. He's saying, I know you guys need grace to continue. I know you guys need peace to continue, but not just any grace and peace. You need those from the everlasting God whose spirit is holy, perfect, and complete, and from Jesus Christ, the perfect example, substitute, death defeater, and ruler of heaven on earth. He is why you are living. He is why you can persevere. He is why he is with you every step of the way. That's the real Jesus on display. I pray that is who we are giving our life to. If we are not, if we go to something else for our grace and peace, we can become spiritually bankrupt. We will lack joy. We will lack endurance. We may start disengaging with our missional community family, start working longer hours, start thinking we are too busy to have time for mission, Bible study. We may even stop spending any time with God at all. We can know this is us by checking to see if we are anywhere near where John is at here. Like in our other epistles, John here gets so excited about what he just shared with these people that he breaks out into worship. It's called a doxology. It's praising God for who he is and what he's done and what he's about to do. He says, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Important for Christians to hear that are being persecuted. Reminds them that being freed from their sins is much better than being freed from any persecution that the Romans may be bringing them. John continues with an implication of that good news. Because Christ loved us and died for us, we can now be made right with God and be who God has always intended us to be. He says, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Here he praises God for doing this while at the same time reminding these people of their identity. Jesus made them a kingdom, ones who will rule and reign with him in the kingdom and also priests 
those who have access to God and those who have been called to represent God to creation. We too have been given this calling. How serious do we take it? If we can't see Jesus clearly, more than likely we won't take it too seriously at all. We will be more concerned with the things of this world than the things of our God, which will rob him of his glory that he deserves and the joy that we all long for. John says to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, if we get a full grasp of who Jesus really is, those words will forever be on our mouths and our lives will follow. Only the real Jesus can bring us to worship and live like that. Verse 7 continues. John, with this greeting, says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Commentators believe that this verse is combining two Old Testament references. Daniel 7, which we will get into a little later, where Daniel describes a son of man coming with the clouds in the last days. And Zechariah 12 where the rest of the verse is described. Remember, these Christians were more than likely converted Jews, so they would know the Old Testament very well. So again, he's giving them reason to worship. He's telling them, the one who Daniel and Zechariah were prophesying about, that's Jesus. Hear and believe. He's coming on a cloud, and not just one of those white things that we see in the sky. It's the Shekinah glory cloud, something that's so amazing that it can't be missed so that people from all nations will see him, even those who reject him and say there is no God and that Jesus was just a man. People from every tribe and nation will be brought to repentance. They will wail because for the first time, they will see the real Jesus. I hope all of us will see and know him well before this happens. Finally, to bring an end to this greeting and call to worship, in verse eight, he goes back to what he's already said in verse four. The Lord God is the one who is and who was and who is to come. He's everlasting. But he adds to this description. He writes that the Lord says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, referring to the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. In this phrase, Jesus is claiming complete control of all of history. He's saying, I started everything. I am the end of everything. And I sustain everything in the middle. He is the creator and sustainer. He is the great high priest, the great sacrifice, the king of all the earth. He's our counselor. He's our deliverer, our redeemer, and he will be the restorer, the consummator, the victor. He's the almighty. Why would we want to serve and follow any other? The God of money didn't create us and doesn't sustain us. The God of comfort and, and easy life didn't die for us and never will. The God of fame and success isn't the omega. It won't be there in the end. Time and space will not bow to any of these other gods. So why do we? Why do we run to things of lesser glory, hoping that they are going to satisfy us? Can we ask ourselves that this morning? I know some of you probably just wanted to come in this morning and hear what in the world it means that Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. I promise we're going to get there, but will we stop and think about who John is showing us here so we can be changed by him? If it hasn't showed us enough already, verses 9 through 20 will hopefully do that. John describes this vision that he was given. 
And in this vision is where we see, get to see more of the real Jesus. But before we get there, John sets the stage for this amazing experience that he had. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John is speaking to these people as a pastor, but is also their brother and one who has experienced the difficulties of following Jesus just as they have. He's reminding them of what theologians call the already but not yet of this church age that we're currently in. He says three things are in Jesus. The first is tribulation. This is speaking of the suffering that Christians were going through at that time. The emperor of Rome was violently persecuting them. Some of these readers were no doubt crucified. Some had their limbs tied to horses, one to the left and one to the right, and then horses would take off in opposite directions, ripping them in half. Some were beheaded, some were buried alive. This was happening because the Romans wanted them to worship Caesar, whom they considered deity, but the Christians refused as they followed God's law of putting no other gods before him. Much worse suffering than we see today, isn't it? I wonder if the suffering they went through was much worse because many Christians now haven't refused to worship the deities of the current culture. So there's no need for persecution. I think if many of us Christians took a close look at our lives, we might not like how similar they look to non-Christians. Why do so many of us fail in marriage? Why do so many of us are stingy with our money? Why do so many of us have calendars with everything on them except days of rest? Why is it so hard for us to share our faith with those in our life? It's easier, more comfortable to just fit in, isn't it? Just to go with what makes us feel good. I'm with you, if that's you. I'm a peacekeeper. I'm an Enneagram 9. I don't like conflict. I would rather keep things comfortable than ruffle feathers by saying something or living in a way that challenges the cultural norms. This is constant repentance and faith for me in this area. And God is changing me through that, as I'm sure he's doing with many of you. Well, we need to pray for that change and get a clear picture of the real Jesus. Church, the good news of this passage has for us will not be good news if we aren't living the way God has called us to live. The real Jesus is unnecessary for people who are living lukewarm lives. In the coming weeks, we find out what the real Jesus will do to people who are living lukewarm lives. And it's not where we want to be. We want to, again, be set aflame, be red hot with a desire to live for Jesus. If we are doing that, we can expect persecution, but in that persecution, we can know that we are in it because the kingdom is not yet fully here, but that kingdom is coming. The second thing John says is in Christ is that kingdom. The kingdom is the already part of this age. We've already mentioned back in verse six a little bit about this kingdom, but this kingdom is here because Christ has brought it. Christ has come and lived the perfect life and died for the sins of many and then was resurrected, which gave him victory over the grave, sin, death, and the enemy. There is and can be blessing in this life. We can experience glimpses of the kingdom here and now. Life isn't all suffering. But in comparison to what's coming in the future, which we'll see as we move through the book of Revelation, this life is something that requires this last piece that we see is in Christ. 
patient endurance. John's saying that, that he is their partner fighting for patient endurance through this life lived in a time that is already but not yet. He himself was experiencing this persecution by being exiled to the island of Patmos where he was imprisoned for as he says here, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was living the Christian life, not succumbing to the pressures of the culture and not giving in to Rome's request of worshiping Caesar as king. And it earned him prison. What does he do while in prison? He stays open to being used by God and draws into God. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Interesting phrase here. More than likely, this means he was in prayer. In this prayer, John says that he was in the Spirit. He's highlighting the need of the Holy Spirit in order for Christ to be clearly seen. One of the Spirit's primary roles is to shine a light on Christ. He also says that he showed it to him on the Lord's day. I feel like everything has a day now. National Donut Day. International Rodent Appreciation Day. I love the first one. Not a fan of the second one so much. So days have been a little watered down in our time. But the Lord's Day is much more significant. These early Christians, again, were converted Jews, which meant that they had over a thousand-year history of worshiping and resting on the last day of the week, Saturday. And remember, the Jews were God's people, so they weren't wrong in doing that. They were following the law of God. But after Jesus' resurrection on a Sunday, the first day of the week, their worship changed. Their everyday lives changed. While everyone else in culture didn't worship and didn't rest on Sunday, Christians did. What Jesus did and who he was changed them. Do we desire that type of change? Do we desire to have him rule our life? Continuing in verse 10, we finally get to what John experiences. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. There are the seven actual churches which represent the church universal. John then wants to see what he's hearing. So verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. One of the comments that Pastor Sam made was that if he heard a voice like a trumpet coming from behind him, he would be checking his trousers first. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Not sure that that is what John was expecting to see, but what's going on here? John is back to using symbolic language to describe his experience. Remember, this is apocalyptic literature. What do these lampstands mean? Verse 20 actually tells us they represent the churches. He isn't pulling these symbols from out of the air, though. He knows the word of God. Here he is remembering the book of Exodus, where the lampstands were part of the tabernacle, as well as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he says this, you, his followers, and now the church, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus charges his followers to be light like he is light. He says others should be able to look in at our lives and see how we are doing good, how we are loving people, how we are fighting for justice and peace, how we are bringing order out of chaos in our families, in our neighborhoods, in this city. Only red-hot people, Christians set aflame, will show that. Verse 13 continues to expand our idea of who Jesus really is. It starts John's description of the glorified Jesus, the one many people forget about or maybe have never met. This is where I feel like I have to take a deep breath. If you are note takers, this is probably not a time where you would want to be taking notes. I'm going to be going really fast here. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Again, not pulling for the description out of the air, but the Word of God. John is going back to the book of Daniel. And in his vision that we read in Daniel chapter 7, a vision that shines light on the vision that we see here given to John. Daniel also sees in his vision, one like a Son of Man. And the Son of Man that Daniel saw, he says, came to the Ancient of Days, which is how Daniel describes God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. John is seeing Jesus as the son of man that Daniel describes in his vision. John no doubt had heard about this figure and that he, that he is seeing and maybe even recognizes him. But like maybe many of us this morning, John is seeing this one like a son of man in a new way. He's seeing Jesus completely unveiled with all his divinity shining through. He continues, one like the son of man, clothed with a long robe and a a golden sash around his chest. Now today we may think robes are silly, but in John's day they were important. Again, he's describing, yes, what he saw, but but it's more than that. It's this whole experience that he had in this vision where Jesus is revealing himself. So this is not just Jesus' outfit choice for that particular day, but his clothing is a representation of who he is. Who's that? Two people from John's day that were known for wearing robes were priests and kings. He is seeing Jesus as the great high priest, the one who is the great mediator between God and man. He's also seeing him as the king of kings. The golden sash represents Jesus' dominion over the whole earth. All of creation is under his rule and reign. Verse 14 continues this vision. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. The color white in biblical language speaks of purity. White hair speaks of wisdom. If we look back at Daniel 7 again when describing Yahweh or the ancient of days, he says his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. John is seeing Jesus not only as the son of man who has been given dominion over all the earth, but also as the ancient of days, God Almighty himself. Jesus was revealing himself in perfect purity and possessor of all wisdom. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This is a description from the book of Daniel again, where in another vision, he sees a man whose eyes were like flaming torches, more than likely symbolizing Jesus' ability to see all and know all. Nothing can be kept secret from him. Even things we keep secret from everyone else, Jesus sees right through to our heart and knows everything about us, even things that nobody else knows. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Again, from the vision in Daniel 10, Jesus shows John his power and glory. 
Bronze represents power in biblical language. In a dream interpreted by Daniel from the king Nebuchadnezzar, there was a statue made of different metals that, was repre- that represented the different kingdoms that were going to rise and fall before the Lord. Bronze most likely represented the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire that ever existed up in history until now. So the bronze feet of Jesus meant that he was omnipotent, all-powerful over everything else. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. I've never been to Niagara Falls, but I hear that when you're there, you hear nothing else other than the rushing of the water. Like that, when the glorified Jesus speaks, all else is quiet. Your fears, quiet. The enemy, quiet. Death is quiet. Verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. We learn that these stars represent angels from, again, verse 20, symbolizing that Jesus is much greater, more powerful, more majestic than even the heavenly beings because he holds them in his hand. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Many believe that the Romans were so successful in battles because they invented a new type of sword. Swords before the Romans were only sharp on one side, limiting the amount of damage that they could do to an enemy. With this much sharper sword, two-edged sword, the Romans were invincible. Here, this powerful weapon is coming from Jesus' mouth, symbolizing the power and strength of his words. His word is invincible against anything or anyone coming against him. To wrap up this description of Jesus, John says, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. If it hasn't been obvious already, this last piece of the description of Jesus shows us is John not describing so much what Jesus looked like, but what he is like. When we get to heaven, or if Jesus returns before we get there, we're not going to look at him and see a sword sticking out of his mouth, more than likely. We're getting a picture of who Jesus is, what he's like in all of his glory, something, again, that should set us aflame and bring us to worship. So what would you do if you were able to see Jesus in this way? Would you want to snuggle with him? Would you just say, hey, Jesus, what's up, man? And show him your Jesus is my homeboy shirt. Would you just start asking him for stuff like a spoiled brat because you know you're one of the king's kids? I wouldn't recommend any of those options. This isn't one that we can just have a little bit of sprinkled on all the other things of our life that are means to our own happiness. This is one that demands our full allegiance. This is one that deserves our full worship. Through our brother John here, we get a picture of at least the first piece of what it looks like to give allegiance and worship to the real Jesus. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Like many others in the Bible, when in the presence of the glory of God, Daniel in chapter 10, the disciples at the transfiguration, Isaiah, when God visits him, John collapses to the ground. He collapses because what or who he is in the presence of is so magnificent. It's so incredible that it terrifies him. The sound of the voice, the glory of what he sees is too much. He knows he can't run. He knows he can't hide. His only hope is to receive mercy from this majestic figure. If the apostle John was terrified here and needs mercy, You think it would be any different for us? Us who maybe Jesus isn't our priest? Maybe isn't our king? Us who push 
him to the margins of our life and try to avoid him. We see other things of this earth as much better than him. If that's us, I hope this scene puts some terror in us. And if it does, if we can see Jesus properly and know that he is perfectly holy and terrifying and we humble ourselves before him and hit the ground, then like John experiences here, we can receive mercy as well. Look at the rest of verse 17. If we haven't heard enough to break out into praise of the Lord Jesus Christ, this will do it. But he, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the sovereign king of the universe, the one who created heaven and earth and everything in them, the one we turn our back on, the one we fail to make much of, the one who has every reason to hate us and to send us to everlasting damnation in hell, he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. Don't be terrified. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. Church, may this be an image that becomes fixated forever in our minds and in our hearts. May we never forget this. When we are hurting, when we are anxious or depressed, when we are overwhelmed with life's demands, when we are in sin and not living the life that we've been called to live, when guilt sets in and shame follows, when it seems that all of our joy has been robbed from us and it's not coming back, can we look up? Can we open our ears? Can we see and hear the real Jesus? The one who's been exalted in all of his glory. And we feel his right hand upon us and receive this good news. Fear not, my brother. Fear not, my sister. Fear not, my fellow heir to the throne. I have died so you don't have to. I am alive so that you can live with me forever. I have the keys to hell so it or nothing else could take you from me. Receive my grace, look upon my face, drink of this cup, eat of this body, rest in who I am because I am yours and you are mine. Sacred City Moline, how many people outside this building right now need to meet a king like that? How many people need to meet Christians who have already met that type of king and love him ferociously? That's what Revelation is calling us to. See Jesus rightly, which brings us to worship, causes us to live our lives so that attracts others to worship him. No matter how much suffering comes our way, no matter how difficult that path might be. John goes on in verse 19 to give John, Jesus goes on in verse 19 to give John a command. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. John had an important job to do, and he did it. Christians ever since have benefited from what John did. His obedience led to the building up of the body of Christ to move the kingdom forward. We also have been given an important job to do. We've been given a command. At Sacred City, we sum it up as make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. Also an important job, and if we're going to do it, we need to learn something of what, about what fueled John. John was able to see clearly the real Jesus. Everything that he describes in this vision and all of it caused him to collapse in fear. Then experiences Jesus in all of his mercy, grace, and love. 
as he places his hand upon him and says, fear not. I've got you. You are on my team. You are part of my family. And we're going to win. I promise. After receiving that from Jesus, then he can go and make an impact. We need to follow that same pattern. We need to have the right view of Jesus, see the real Jesus, humble ourselves before him, and be brought to worship. Then we can patiently endure in the life that Christ has called us to live. Let's pray. Father, I hope I have a voice tomorrow. I thank you for being able to preach such a powerful text. I thank you for getting a clear vision of who Jesus actually is so that we can put to death any sort of other vision of Jesus that we have, Lord. May you illuminate what we talked about today, Lord. May you show us clearly in our mind, in our hearts, who the real Jesus is so that we can then go and live for that Jesus. We can worship him first and then live our lives in a way that others could look in and start to worship worship him also. So we thank you for what you spoke to us today, Lord. Would you fix it upon our minds, who you are and what you've done and what you're going to do. May you fix upon our minds that if we are in Christ, then we are on the right team, that victory is won, that the kingdom is coming, that we could be a piece of what it looks like to bring that kingdom here and now. May we see you as beautiful. May we see you as awesome. May we see you as the king of the world. May that affect our lives. May we be that light of the world that you've called us to be. May we be set aflame. May we be red hot leaving here. Go out into the city and show people what you're like. It's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen.